0: I want to preach to you about the church. I want to talk to you about the church today. I do not know how long this is going to last. I don't know how long it's going to be till we can meet together again. Uh, It's helped me realign some things and helped me think some things through the church. uh, I looked up um, in in some commentaries when I was putting this message together. Uh, I had plenty of time last night. You know, like I said, I was up till 5 o'clock this morning. And so I was putting a lot of stuff together. And the church in the commentary said, a local assembly of believers as well as the redeemed of all the ages who follow Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. I want you to notice, and, and I've referred to this a lot here, is that not only are we talking about the local assembly being here as the church, but we are also talking about the redeemed of all the ages. The same church that Peter was involved with in in, in uh, touch with and in operation with is the same church you and I are in op- operation with today. The same church that Peter, James, and John were in is the same church that we're in today. So the church is not just a uh, an entity that has an end right now. The church was birthed from the beginning of time, the the congregation of the saints. From the Old Testament saints to the New Testament saints, to now the 21st, 21st century saints is us today. We're all part of the group of the church, and we follow Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Okay, let's go to the next one there. The church began on the day of Pentecost. The church began on the day of Pentecost, and that, that just reminds me there is a, a message that I just downloaded and getting ready to put on podcast that talks about the, the birth of the original classic church it wasn't the uh baptist church it wasn't the methodist church it wasn't the pentecostal church it wasn't the catholic church it was just the church and that is the modern the model that which we're trying to go after that is the model of the church that we're trying to go and, and to achieve and get to is the early new testament church and so it was birthed on the day of pentecost All right, next one. So the Greek word in the New Testament for church is ecclesia. This word is used 115 times in the New Testament, mostly in the book of Acts and the writings of the Apostle Paul and in the general epistles. At least 92 times this word refers to a local congregation. The other references are to the church in general, or all believers everywhere of all ages. So we're talking about the local church assembly, and we're also talking about the church worldwide. We're talking about the church in in, uh, San Carlos City, in the Philippines, where I've ministered before. That church met 14 hours ago. I'm talking about the churches in Bulgaria where I've ministered. Those churches met eight hours ago. I'm talking about the churches that will meet in Hawaii. They're going to meet five hours from now. I'm talking about the church worldwide. We are all part of the ecclesia, which means the called out ones. Let's go on. In the Pauline epistles, both of these usages are frequent. Thus the apostle writes this to the church of the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 1 1. To the church of God which is at Corinth. That's in 1 Thessalonians or 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 and 2 Corinthians 1 and 1. So Paul is addressing each of these churches here. Next one, please. So indeed, Paul localizes and particularizes particularizes the word yet further by applying it to a single Christian household so a single Christian household is the church a single Christian household is the church it's not these four walls that I'm walking around in today and I don't see a hundred and some of you it's not these four walls it is the church is in a house to little groups of believers who were accustomed to assemble in private houses for worship and fellowship. That can be found in Romans 6, 5, 16, 5, 1 Corinthians 16:19, Colossians 4:15, and Philemon 1, verse 2. It is an employment of the word which recalls the saying of what Jesus said in Matthew 18:20. He said this: For where two or three gather together as my followers, I am there among them. If two or three are gathered together, he's in the midst. If two or three are gathered together, he is among them. Amen. So he, he, it doesn't matter if there's three of us or if there's 300 of us. That's the church. The church is mobile. Not only is the church part of the uh, ages gone by, not only is the church part of the ages that is to come, not only the church today, but the church is mobile. It's throughout the world. It's not limited to a building. You know, if you need to go get some legal papers, you have to go to a courthouse. You have to go to the county seat or the state capitol to get these certain papers, but not the church. It's wherever his believers are gathered together, that's the church. And so let's talk about that a little bit more today. 1 Corinthians sixteen twenty. the church is here in the providence of Asia and S- Uh, of Asia, send greetings in the Lord, as do Aquila and Priscilla and all the others who gather in their home for church meetings. Paul was talking about the church that was in Priscilla and Aquila's home. Next one. Colossians 4.15, please give my greetings to our brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church that meets in her house. Sound like life groups. The church that meets in her house. Next one. Philemon 1, 1 and 2. I am writing to Philemon, our beloved co-worker, and to our sister, Afia, Afia, and to our fellow soldier, Archippus. How about that for a name? Might submit that to Megan. That could be a good name for this baby. Archippus. Archippus. Does anybody like that out there, Archifus? Hello? There's a time delay here. With we'll us, go on. Now Megan's at an eight. Archifus, get ready, Megan. Add to the church that meets in your house. So these churches were meeting in houses, these churches were meeting. In individual houses, not just coming to a local assembly, but it gets bigger than that. Let's go on. The command to go back. The command to go back. Acts chapter 1, verse 1 says, this is the New Living Translation. In my first book, I told you, Theophilus, about everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. Now, see, here's where I'm usually at. Where are you at, Randall? Hello. Where's the trout gang? Hello, Kevin. Where you all at? Next one, please. During the 40 days after his crucifixion, he appeared to the apostles from time to time, and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive and he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Yes. Once when he was eating with them, he commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised. As I told you before, John baptized with water, but in just a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now let me say this. As I was putting this together, the Lord was saying this. He said, look, they had never received the Holy Spirit. They really did not know what he was talking about. They did not understand that it was the indwelling of the Spirit of God inside of their temples, their bodies. They did not understand that. He was bringing something new to them. He was bringing a new concept to them. And so as... As he was going on, Jesus was dropping these revelations on them and he was beginning to push them and he was beginning to get them to the place that he wanted to stretch their faith. That may be where we're at today. We may be getting our faith stretched a little bit. Maybe we have been uh, too comfortable inside the walls of this church. Maybe we have been too comfortable not getting out more in the community. When I, we started this church, I wanted this church to be a, a church that would be in the community. I wanted this church to be part of the community, ministering to the community. I wanted this church to be able to have a food pantry, and God miraculously brought the food pantry. I wanted this church to be able to have conferences, and, and we had some fabulous conferences with the youth. Five years in a row, we did a conference called Fusion, and there are several people on this on, in this Uh, congregation today and have families. Caitlin Pate came to a fusion. Uh, Addie Durbin was invited to a fusion by Kirsten. And so there's people here because of all of this. God wants to stretch our lives. He wants to stretch our faith. He wants to stretch our minds. Some people may say, how are we going to minister if we can't go to church? That's precisely it. That's where you touch people is outside the church. We're always, and, and this is the church world, we are always wanting people to come. Come to the church. Come to the church. Come to this revival. Come to this meeting. Come to this, this thing that we're having. Come, come, come. And Jesus said, go. Jesus didn't say, come. He said, go. And so that's what we're trying to do, when, and, and we're looking at this. And somebody may say, well, I don't know about life groups. You know, listen, I'm telling you, life groups are very, very important. I'm going to show you some more on that. Let's go to the next one. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit, which we've never heard of and don't even know what in the world he's talking about. He's probably losing his mind up in here, up in here. Jesus is losing his mind. Amen. All right. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore the kingdom? They were looking at the natural kingdom of Israel. They were looking at the kingdom of Israel that was the political landscape and the, uh, the, the landscape of an, on a national level for the nation. And Jesus is looking for a spiritual kingdom, and he's looking to birth a kingdom that is in their hearts and not in their communities. And they, so he's, they're stuck on one thing and he's talking about another. Let's not do that. Let's not be stuck on something that the Lord is not talking about. I know I've been in churches before, and they start a ministry, and that ministry goes on and on and on, and at first, it's a, it's a bang. At first, it's so good, and everybody's involved, and it's wonderful, and then as time goes on, uh, the interest begins to wane, and the attendance begins to dwindle, and things begin to happen, and, and everybody's afraid to pull the plug on the ministry. So guess what? You can plug something else in, unplug something that's not working, and plug something in that is working. Amen? Let's do that. Let's go on. He replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times. They're not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And he said, then you'll be witnesses. What are you going to do? You're not going to hide this in a building. You're going to be witnesses. You're going to be witnesses in... Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He said, go. Next one. After saying this, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching, and they could no longer see him. As they strained to see him rising into heaven, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said. Why are you standing here staring into heaven? I like to ask some people that many times in life. Why are you just standing there? You ever run into somebody you just want to know why are you standing there? Why are you just standing there staring? Let's get up and do something. Let's get up and move along. Now we've got a we've got a big crowd today and I got a front row amen right here. Somebody get her on the webcast. There she is. Macy Joe. That's right. Okay, so why are you just standing there staring? Jesus has been taken up from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. Next one. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, a distance of a half mile. When they arrived, they went to the upstairs room of the house where they were staying. So look where look where they headed. They headed to a house. Look where they headed. They headed to a house that they were staying in. Where are you at today? If you're listening to the governor, you better be in your house. If you're listening to the president, you better be in less than a group of 10. I'm not gonna fight all of these restrictions. They're trying to do something to keep us all safe. I've been watching Facebook and, and stuff online and these guys are having church, bless God. We're, we got the power, Jesus can heal. Uh, but And you know, you gotta have faith. Listen, at the same time, you've got to have faith, but at the same time, the Bible says to obey them that have rule over you. They're not saying don't have church because we're still having church. In fact, church is going out all over the world in every time zone, right into homes and houses and right into cars, right into everything else. The, The gospel is moving on in. So when they arrived, they went to the house. Okay, let's see what happens now. The birth of the church. Now the church is about to be born. Where's the church going to be born? In a house. Okay. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Now watch what is the word, the key word here. Even though there's no people over here, I'm still over on this side. What is, what's the deal? I'm coming over to the other side, Macy. Because, I mean, I'm sure you took a shower today and everything. Then suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and it filled the house, the house. Where are you at today? You're in your house. You're saying, what can I do today? You can do a lot today. You can minister in your house. You know, a lot of you guys and gals, you got Facebook. I mean, you got your, hand, your computer is like surgically implanted into your, into your body. It's like in your hand. It's very difficult for anybody to get anything done because got to, you're you always on there. Now, I'm not always on there. I've been on Facebook more the last week trying to watch to see what other preachers are doing and how churches are handling this and what I'm trying to get educated about what I need to do. I did decide one thing that I wasn't going to sit down and read the Bible and talk to you from a table because I, I, I did that and fell asleep on a guy. So I said, no, I ain't going to do that. So I thought, I'm just going to have church just like we usually have it. And that's what we're going to have. So uh, you can sit in your house and be Facebooking and messaging your friends and ministering to them. You can project faith into their lives rather than fear. You can give them scriptures, and you can love them. You can, you can find somebody that's in need. This may be a time when the church really steps up from just being uh, a, an entity in four walls and starts to become the hands and feet of our Lord Jesus Christ and, and begins to love people and begins to help people and begins to minister to folks' needs. That's what we need, folks, is how you like that word. That's what we need is we need to be able to touch and to minister. Jesus went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil. That's what the book of Acts says, They describing the ministry of Jesus. And that's what we're supposed to do, is we're supposed to be the hands and feet that Jesus was. So there we go. They were in the house, and the Holy Ghost came. Next one, please. So up until the last hundred years or so, many social institutions and events were centered in and around the home. Lots of things a hundred years ago happened in the home that don't happen now. For instance, here we go. We're going to take a little journey through history. Uh Uh-huh. Next one. Well, I tell you, somebody's going to have to be on their job. We're going to have to raise your pay or cut your pay. I'm not sure. Funerals were done at home. Funerals were done at home. I can remember as a kid... Going to people's houses to view their body. I know it's weird. That's because you're not used to that. But I was. That was normal for me. Because that's what I knew. That's what funerals were done. Not in a funeral home. They were done at home. I remember walking in people's houses and there they'd be in a laying there in a casket in the living room. Let's go on. Let's. This describes it here a little bit better. From the beginning of time until about the 1860s and the Civil War in America, pretty much all funerals were, were home funerals. So let's look at that. It was always our practice to be with loved ones as they died in our homes. Today they die in nursing homes. There weren't nursing homes 100 years ago. You took care of your family member until they were gone. You took care of them. No matter what it cost, no matter what it took in time and effort and energy, you took care of your loved ones. Then with our own hands, we washed, dressed, combed their hair, laid them out, and lamented. While neighbors built the coffin or wound the shroud, others dug the grave, made a meal, or sat with the body for two or three days even. Pause the tape during the Civil War and you'll see the same trend in death care as in medical care that moved out of community hands and into the hands of paid workers. It would take another 50 years for the newly minted undertakers to use marketing strategies to rebrand themselves as morticians, then finally as funeral directors. And another 30 years after that for today's conventional funeral and burial practices to become what marketeers mislabel as the traditional funeral, an industry-made construction not rooted in any religious foundation or meaningful cultural benefits. So as you can see, these funerals were done at home. I was even reading where uh, there wasn't even embalming. Many times. A lot of times the graves were right there on the homestead, on the, on the farm. Historically, community-led death care started immediately at death, or even as it approached, and is Williams Faulkner's As I Lay Dying book, where the author describes how the ailing mother lay on her deathbed near an open window, able to hear her sons as they built the coffin in the yard below. Typically, family and neighbors went to the home of the deceased to lay out the body on a table, a bed, or even on a door spanning on sawhorses. That was how funerals were done 100 years ago. Just like that. But it's not just funerals. Let's go to the next one. Weddings were done at home. Let's cheer this up a little bit. Let's get away from funerals to weddings. Weddings were done at home. Seven wedding traditions that have virtually disappeared over the past century. This was interesting. Almost a century ago, an Illinois bride cracked open her wedding diary. The thin, white cloth-covered book had empty pages where a bride could record the details of her nuptials. There was a page to describe how the couple met, another to note the engagement, and several to paste in the engagement announcements. The bride, 18-year-old Marjorie Goddard, was seemingly unimpressed with the book. She completed only one page, a form designed to resemble a marriage certificate. In big, loopy cursive, she recorded who she married, when and where, and the rest of the pages remained empty. Marjorie's slight wedding diary was typical for brides of her time. The book did not devote any pages to receptions or prenuptial parties. There was no space for for a bride to describe her reception venue, the music played by the band, or the meal served. Couples of that era, most often married in their parents' home, usually on a weekday. The lavish affairs that are now regular, how you like my French there, didn't become popular until the 1970s. This means the customs we now call traditions are fairly recent. The Saturday evening affair with dinner, dancing, centerpieces, and party favors is not a long-standing tradition. For most modern wedding guests, a traditional American wedding would be totally unrecognizable. Here are seven traditions that have changed the most over the years. Here we go. Now, if they would spend as much time today that they do on their weddings and receptions and preparation, just put that in the bank because you're going to need it when you're going to get trouble and you're going to have to pay for the marriage counselor. They're 100 to 200 bucks an hour depending on where you live. So just get ready, get ready, get ready. Oh, but pastor, we're in love. Yeah, I know. I know. We better go to the traditions. Traditional weddings were on weekdays. I didn't realize that. Next one. More than a century ago, there was a rhyme that helped brides pick a date. Mondays were for wealth and Tuesdays for health. Wednesdays the best day of all, Thursdays for crosses, Fridays for losses, and Saturday for no luck at all. That is the 1903 White House etiquette guide reminded young society women of the rhyme and also noted that in addition to bringing terrible luck, Saturday weddings were terribly unfashionable. That's where everybody gets married now, Saturdays. See, you didn't know that. That, Aren't you glad you tuned in today to watch me on television, on your phone, on your tablet? Now you know that weddings weren't on Saturdays. Next one. Weddings were early. High noon, assured the White House etiquette guide, was the most fashionable time to get married. Lunchtime weddings were modeled after English tradition and demanded more effort than the late afternoon nuptial, which only required a reception. That was nice. Okay. Next one. Receptions were optional. As late as the early 1960s, many couples were were foregoing receptions. Even if they had a church wedding, the practice was common enough that a popular 1961 guide checklist for a perfect wedding detailed how the receiving line should be ordered if if there was no reception. So they had weddings and no receptions. And this is just recently. The church was started in a house. People died and had funerals in houses. Weddings were done. Where were weddings done? Let's go on. Receptions were simple. For couples who did host a prenuptial celebration, receptions were typically limited to cake and punch. There were no past uh, whore's divorce. Okay. I know that's hors d'oeuvres. I know that, but I call it whore's divorce. All right. You like that, Macy? That gets that. How about it out there? How about it out there? Whore's divorce. Next time you go to a reception, make sure they give you some whore's divorce. All right, let's go on. Circulating wine stewards or dessert bars. Society pages and newspapers reported these simple events but treated them as elaborate affairs. At one 1961 North Carolina reception, for example, the local newspaper reported that guests were served cake and punch from a crystal ball, a detail that was clearly noteworthy. They served from a crystal bowl. How about that? Is that crazy? Now, you know why they do weddings. When they do weddings, they have cake and punch, don't you? Why? Because there's, why? Why, why? The echoes ring. Why, Pastor, why? From the thousands of miles on the Internet. Why, why, why? Well, I'm going to tell you why. Because that represents Communion, the body of Christ, cake and punch. Because a marriage is between a man and a woman. It is one of, The marriage is one of the oldest institutions because it is eternal. Therefore shall man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife. And they're supposed to be married forever, right? Isn't that how it's supposed to go? All right. I'm not hearing any response. Amen. Does, it, does anybody like that out there? Do we have any applause out there? Is there any applause? The story even noted how the ice cubes in the punch were shaped like hearts. Are you kidding me? Now they're reporting a crystal bowl, and now the ice cubes shaped like hearts. Oh my goodness! OMG! That was big hit news back then. The day was DIY and inexpensive. You know what that means? Do it yourself. At most cake and punch or breakfast receptions, family members were put to work serving guests. This practice was so common that newspaper wedding announcements even listed which family members doubled a staff. At one New Hampshire wedding in 1951, for example, the paper noted how the bride's aunt and cousins served breakfast to all the guests. The guest list was notably large, 200 people, and the bride recruited six aunts and five cousins to serve the crowd. Hallelujah! That's when you need a Zimmerman, Worley, or Davis family when you get lots of hands on deck. I was, I was Ginger and I were, t- were talking a few weeks ago, and I asked her if she remembered our grandmother's, my grandmother, her great grandmother's funeral, and she said no, but she said I was reading the the obituary about her, and she said she had 93 grandchildren. And I said, oh, yes, I remember that day, because I was sitting in the funeral, and they were reading the obituary, and, and they said 93. I was in college at the time. It was in 1986. I was in college at the time, and I'm like, I don't even know half these people. There were people at that dinner from Ohio and Michigan and Texas and Nevada and, and, I mean, all New Jersey and New York and Pennsylvania. And I'm like, hey, who are they? Well, those are your cousins. Who are they? Well, that's, that's so-and-so's kids. They're your cousins. Ninety-three. So you've got to have big families to do all this. Watch this. I, I wish we could find this one again. Parents didn't always pay. Woo! Hallelujah! Can I get some praise on that? Parents did not always pay. Yes. Woo. Hallelujah. Okay, that's awesome. Etiquette books such as the White House Guide clearly stated the bride's parents were responsible for most of the expenses. And while such was the standard among many marrying couples, there were many cultural communities who had other practices. Well through the 1920s, Italian-Americans, there you go, the Italians, the Italian-Americans, grooms, for example, were responsible for paying for the reception, securing a home, and furnishing the new property. Some brides were able to pick the furniture for the new house and send their fiancé the bill. Oh, man, we should have scratched that line. We should have deleted that line right there. All right, the honeymoon and home took precedent. Many modern couples spend significant money on rings and receptions, but neither expense is long is a long-standing tradition. This 1909 Sears catalog. Anybody remember the 1909 Sears catalog? In fact, right now, a lot of people yes. In fact, right now, a lot of people are praying that the Sears catalog was still around because you can't buy toilet paper anywhere. Now, some of you don't even know what I'm talking about, but that's what I always heard. Back in the olden times, they didn't have toilet paper, but they had corn cobs and they had the Sears catalog. <laughs> yes, thank you very much. All right, we're getting a little better. The Sears catalog had pages of rings, including baby rings that one purchased for fashionable inf- infants. For ladies, there were rings with pearls and rubies and sapphires and diamonds, but none were designated as engagement or wedding rings. A standard wedding ring was a band of gold, according to the 1879 guide Wedding Etiquette and Usages of Polite Society, which claimed to be on top of the elite bridal trends. That makes a lot of sense why my mom's wedding rings were just simply gold bands. No big diamonds, nothing like that, just simply gold bands. Without a reception or ring to eat up costs, couples put their money toward their honeymoons and post-wedding residences. Marjorie's wedding diary reflected this value. The little book had several pages to record honeymoon memories and paste photographs. The following section was her place to describe the couple's new home and include a photograph. Marjorie, however, chose not to do either. It seems the only thing that mattered was that she and Samuel Bowers were united in holy matrimony. So they got married at home, and it's all changed. Next one. Doctors back in the day made house calls. Doctors came to the house. Babies were born in the house. I don't know how many times my dad, we would drive to town and we would go on this road, this one road, and he would point over and he'd say, I was born in that house right over there. I was born in that house right over there. My mom would say, I was born in this house right here. I mean, right now, we got Megan down there in Maryville. She's having a baby. She's got all the latest technology. She's in a birthing room by herself. I should have put a birthing room picture up here from a a city. There was a birthing room. It was one big building, one big room, and there was probably 20 beds on this side and 20 beds on that side. Amen. And there are three or four nurses just walking down through there just taking care of all those pregnant mamas about to give birth. If you want to see an awesome YouTube situation, go punch in Philippine delivery rooms. You punch in Philippine delivery rooms in Manila and you watch those. You better not eat before you do it because you're going to have a weak stomach. Let's go on. Doctors made house calls. Babies weren't born. In fact, dads couldn't even go to the delivery room. Dads had to stay outside the delivery room. Nobody was allowed in the delivery room. I remember this that even after the babies were born, Cousins and nephews or whatever else could not go see the baby unless they were 12 years or older because you didn't want to take germs in there with you. How about those nurses? I think nurses probably ought to go back to that. You know, maybe wear those hats again, wear those masks. I don't know why that guy's laughing if all three of those are his. I'm not sure why he's laughing about that. All right, never mind. Next one. Then I heard about you ever hear about mean nurses? Back in the day they were they were grouchy mean nurses. They're not like that today. This is this picture here, they did they used to do something called twilight sleeping when a lady was about to give to to, to do delivery, they would shoot and inject her with morphine and another drug. Number one, the morphine to kill the pain and number two, this drug to kind of Blur out the experience, so it wouldn't be a bad experience left in her memory. And then they would have they would, some some ladies would have a reaction to it, and they start convulsing on the bed. So these nurses right here are trying to restrain this lady, that's pregnant, that they just shot up with morphine and this other deal, to help her relax a little bit. See how times have changed. Let's go on. I'm almost finished. The early church met in synagogues, temples, and homes. It wasn't uncommon to meet there. The synagogues and the temples were public places. The homes were private places, but the early church met there. So it really wasn't out of the norm, and and you're, and you're sitting at home today, and you're wondering, this is not normal. We should be at church. But you see, maybe this is really more normal than what we're accustomed to because they all met in homes then. They got buried in homes. They died in homes. They had babies in homes. They had weddings in homes. Are you seeing what I'm saying? Maybe our modern societal situation has brought us to the point where we've commercialized everything, and it's uh, it's it's lost its its personal touch. It's lost its its way that it used to be personal. So the early church and God is not surprised by any of this because this is how it was in the beginning anyway. Oh, pastor, what are you going to do? You're going to sell the building and just to have no. We're going to keep this because this is what society does. But maybe we need to focus a little bit more on personal ministry. Maybe we need to focus a little bit more on home situations. Next one, please. Acts chapter 18, verse 19, they stopped first at the port of Ephesus where Paul left the others behind. While he was there, he went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews. He went to the public place to minister and reason to the Jews. Okay. Acts two forty-six. the day of Pentecost, and they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were in the temple, but then they went there from there to house to house. Are we using our houses for the glory of God like God wants us to? I appreciate every life group leader and host who has opened their homes for this season of life groups that we're doing in the spring semester here. I appreciate that. I believe God did not give you your house just so you have a place to live and a nice place to fix up and fancy up and put stuff all over the walls. But I believe that God may have given you that house that you can use it as a point of ministry, that we can use it as a point to touch a life. Because I want to see life groups not only just be for our church members. I want to see life groups become where people who will not come to a public church service but will go to you and to your house. For a life group, the first week of life groups, I heard all kinds of testimonies where somebody said, I'm lonely. I have no one to talk to. I love this. Somebody else was, before I came to the church, I just wanted to put a gun in my mouth and kill myself. You don't, you don't hear that and find those things out in a public setting, but you do in a private setting. Maybe God just didn't give us our houses just so we have a place to sleep, but he gave them as a point of light to someone's heart who has been darkened by this world, to someone who has no hope, to someone who is lonely and has no one. Maybe our house is that beacon of light for them. They went from house to house, and they ate with gladness and singleness of heart. Thank the Lord they ate. Amen. I feel it's the will of God. And, in fact, it's getting close lunchtime. And you know what that means. If you were sitting here, the pastor's getting hungry. He's already talking about food. I'm getting hungry. So today, let's talk about today as I close. If I can have the musicians get ready to fire up. The largest church in the world, the largest church in the world is the Yordo Full Gospel Church is a Pentecostal church that is affiliated with the Assemblies of God. This church is in Seoul, Korea. It has about 800,000 members. This church has, that was in 2018. I'm reading now that it's close to a million members. This church has nearly a million members. And it is the largest Pentecostal congregation, Christian congregation, in South Korea and in the world. Here's a picture of it. This next one here. That sanctuary will hold 12,000. They have seven services every day. They have prayer meetings at night where thousands of people on Friday nights come and pray. And you say, well, that's a big church, Pastor, and that's a big building and blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, you, we look at this church. This church was just started in, the, I believe, the late 50s or early 60s. This church started in a house. This church started in a house, ministering to the needs of people. This church started in a house, ministering to the needs of the community. Now I want you to know, next one please. They still meet in homes though, today. Not only do they come for a public worship service Not only do they come for a public worship service, but they also meet in homes throughout the city and throughout the country on a daily and a weekly basis. And here's one of the main reasons that they do this. Aside from the fact that this is how they grew is they started out in a home and then they had to get a bigger house and then they had to go to a tent And then they had to go to a bigger tent. And then they had to keep getting bigger bigger and bigger and bigger because the crowds were just overwhelming. But not only did they start out that way, but if you will look on a map, you will find that the city of South Korea is less than 40 or 50 miles from the border with North Korea. You and I don't understand what it's like to live in fear of being invaded without a notice. You and I don't know what it's like to live in fear of someone that is just a couple hours drive from you in their capital who is crazy with nuclear weapons, trying to get nuclear weapons that is threatening to destroy everybody that's around him and near him. In fact, the nuclear proliferation and the negotiations are of worldwide concern and presidents have tried to appease and tried to negotiate with North Korea. But the reason they still meet in homes is because in a moment's time, if North Korea were to invade South Korea, in just a few moments of time, every person's name and every church record of, those, of the Christians, you see a communist regime is not Christian, they're atheists. They don't believe in God. But in a moment's time, every church record and every name of every member can be destroyed. And the church building, which a communist would shut down, take over, tear down, raise, bulldoze, whatever you want to call it, that church will continue because they're in the house. That church will continue because they're from house to house to house. We in America have to realize that they still meet in homes. We may have to get to that point as well. There may come a time when it's just not for a few weeks that we're not going to be able to meet. There may be a time when we're told that we'll never be able to meet again. Is the church ready to mobilize? Are we ready to mobilize? What are we going to do? We better think forward, brothers and sisters. I've got to be honest with you. I was, in my mind, I was reflecting the last couple days about this service I'm going to be preaching to empty pews. I watch the news and I I try to figure out how in the world do these people just talk and talk and talk and there's nobody there but the camera guy and they're looking at a camera and a prompter and a script. Well, I kind of experienced that today. Can I get some applause for that. Guess not. Okay. We're working on this. Hopefully we don't have to have a lot of practice. So what I'm saying is this, next slide, please. They meet in homes and we have life groups. I believe that life groups we've Mitchell's talked to me about life groups for several years and we were going to try to do it last year and things just got away from us and we didn't do it and this year we we've done it and we've had a, a, almost half the church has been in a life group now but I want this to get infectious I want this to get infectious what's going to happen when we come back from a life group on a Sunday night and somebody calls in and says so-and-so came to our life group And they want to be baptized tonight and we all come to the church and we baptize if we don't have a church we're going to go to the lake and baptize we're going to go to the river and baptize we're going to go to a swimming pool we got people with swimming pools at their house we'll baptize amen we'll do it what are we going to do are we God's? maybe trying to get us past these four walls in our mentality Yes, we can still come here and worship. Yes, we can still come here and worship and praise together and communicate and fellowship. And you know what? It's very important for us to do that. But yet it may be time for us to look outside too. Maybe it's time for us to look outside and see what's really outside because we haven't really paid attention before. Next one, please. So we must live our conversion and not just talk about it. It's time for us to live our conversion outside these walls. If I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, and I'm going to live like a Christian. Amen. Next one, please. And remember this. Please remember this. God is in control. Amen? God is in control. Amen. Oh, yeah, they like that. God is in control. So we're going to sing before we leave today. We're going to pray and sing. Lord, in the name of Jesus, I pray that the words that you have given me today will encourage somebody. I pray, Lord, that we will see that you can work beyond the walls of the church. I pray, Lord, that we can see that you can work beyond the walls of our house. And Lord, I pray that we will be able to see in the name of Jesus that our houses are more than just places for us to live, but it's points of ministry. And it's points of light. Lord, the thought that came to me this week is you have used two dynamic examples of what Christianity, true Christianity is really supposed to be and how it's supposed to influence and affect. You use salt and you use light. And Lord, just a little bit of salt can change the whole situation. And just a little bit of light can move back and and dispel. whole lot of darkness. And so, Lord, in the name of Jesus, I pray right now that you will just move through every home that this broadcast is hitting live. You will hit every home that this broadcast will hit archived. That, Lord, this word will spread around the world in the name of Jesus. That, Lord, you will use us mightily. And then, Lord, we will surrender to what your thoughts are, not our thoughts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Somebody say in in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Amen. Let's sing.